My name is Keith Beavers. My wife said to me, like, when we're 50, we should probably go to that whole Star Wars experience at Disney. And I'm like, 50? It's a couple of years from now. I'll start researching now. Cool. Perfect. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to Vine Paris Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. And how you doing? Okay, for the next three episodes, we're going to get down with, and real with, organic, biodynamic, and sustainable. Let's understand what this really is so that we can enjoy it, know it, and own it. Today's episode is sponsored by Puropan, makers of a delightful white wine called Suave Classico. The Puropan family has been making wine in a medieval village in Italy since the 1800s, right next to a castle. You cannot make this up. They minimize impact on the land while making their acclaimed wine with a grape called Garganiga. And I know that word sounds big, Garganiga, like a big castle, but it's really just a normal-sized grape. It's frangrit. It's delicious. To try Puripan and other wines we talk about, follow the link in the episode description to BarrelRoom.com. Okay, wine lovers, here we are at the organic. Well, it's kind of like, you know, organic, sustainable, biodynamic. We're going to do a couple episodes, a few episodes here to kind of explain all this stuff. Because as popular as organic is, what do we really understand about organic? What is an organic wine? What does it mean to have an organic wine? What does that entail? There is so much information and so many ways to approach this subject. I wanted to start with kind of a very um, organic beginning. Okay, Keith, stop. <laughs> anyway, so what I want to say is this. Before industrial fertilizers or industrial chemical agriculture, the world was basically organically farming. There weren't any man-made chemicals yet. Then we created chemical agriculture. And then because of that, there was a response to try to go back to before that because of what was happening with that particular agriculture. I know that sounds a little bit confusing, but when I talk about this, we get into this, you're going to kind of understand what I'm talking about. Okay, so let's start with a little bit of history to kind of get a sense of how we got to this organic thing. In the mid-19th century, around the 1830s or so, there was a man by the name of Justice von Liebig. I'm not really sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he was a professor at a university in Germany. I think it was the University of Geisen, G-E-I-S-S-E-N, I believe, he had a really big impact on the university because it was eventually, his name was actually added to the title of the university at some point. But this guy is known as the father of fertilizer. And his big deal was he employed into agriculture the law of the minimum. And his idea was that a plant only needs a very small amount of a specific list of nutrients to grow. And if you apply this formula to agriculture, your plant will grow in the way you want it to grow because you've controlled it. And he created what was called the NPK fertilizer. N as in Nancy, P as in Paul, K as in Keith. 
And what NPK stands for is nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. These three nutrients in different proportions will basically fertilize your agriculture. And if you, to this day, if you see this three letters on any kind of fertilizer bag, which you still see today, it's a ratio of these three things for whatever that soil bag of soil in Home Depot is telling you it's going to do. It doesn't always have NPK. Sometimes it's only three numbers like five, 10, and five. And those are the respective percentages of that compound in your soil. So it'd be like 5% nitrogen, 10% phosphorus, 5% potassium, and it goes like that. Well, this NPK fertilizer was eventually industrialized, and by the 1920s, it was highly employed into Europe's agriculture. Around this time, farmers around Europe were getting worried about this particular kind of chemical, this particular kind of industrialized fertilizer, because it was producing agriculture, but there were issues around that that were changing the landscape of agriculture almost before their eyes. Things like deficient soils as well as soil erosion. And these issues plagued both annual and perennial agriculture. Annual is basically agriculture you have to plant every year for it to thrive, which is like basically grains. Perennial agriculture are plants that hang out all year round and you don't reseed them. They continue to grow and produce fruit like vines, grapevines. But industrial fertilizer, which then became industrial herbicides, which then became industrial pesticides, started becoming frequently used. And from the 1920s until after, well, you know, after the Second World War, this worry was constant, but it was not internationally recognized. So what would be what was called a green movement starting in the 1920s continued on on kind of a fringe movement trying hard to reduce the amount of industrialized chemical fertilizers and stuff being put into agriculture. And in the 1920s around 1924, 25, there was a Austrian philosopher by the name of Rudolf Steiner who gave a series of lectures on how to go back to the pre-industrialized world of agriculture. And in the next episode, we're going to dive heavy into that. Now, I'm about to get into a bunch of stuff here, but this is, this is the crux of it all. The whole idea of the green slash organic movement, and this is true today as it was then, is that industrialized... chemical agriculture will give the plant what it needs to produce what we want it to produce. But what, what it will not do is maintain, stimulate, and add health to the environment in which that plant grows. What industrial chemicals do is they spray onto the soil, they spray onto the leaves, and they give that law of the minimum to the plant and nothing else. So all it does is produce. When it happen, when it comes to the entire ecosystem around that plant, that's not what what is important 
when it comes to industrialized chemicals. What's important is just that fruit and to make that fruit happen. The consequence is that these NPK fertilizers and other things are targeted for certain parts of the plant, not everything else. So it's not helping the overall health of the plant in its surrounding environment. And then what's actually happening sometimes is when this stuff runs off the plant into the soil, into rivers, it has to be decontaminated. And through the desperation to kind of change this whole landscape here, this is where Rudolf Steiner comes in for the biodynamic agriculture in the 1920s, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But for our purposes here, it wasn't until 1972 that things started improving for agriculture when it comes to organics. In that year, the International Federation of Agricultural Movements, IFOAM, was formed. The formation of this organization helped bring the organic idea from a fringe element into the mainstream. And through the 80s and the 90s, because of better communication and more and more people getting into this idea, the organic movement became a very attractive idea. Why are we doing this? Why are we letting all this runoff into our systems when we could try to do this the way it was before the industrialized chemical fertilizer era. And one of the ways of selling this, especially with the French, was saying that this organic movement that we need to be paying attention to will help us get back to terroir, the word they had created back in the Middle Ages. And so as we know now, through the 80s and the 90s into the early 2000s, we as a country, became very interested in organics, whether it be food or wine. And of course, California pretty much led the charge of organics here in this country. I mean, you still, you know, you had the Alice Waters thing where she had Chez Panisse and she was doing farm to table, but the organic movement really kind of came out. Well, we'll talk about it a little bit in the next episode, but there was a guy named Jim Fetzer who did some really cool stuff in Cali to kind of bring, I don't know, like a sexiness to this kind of agriculture. It worked. But really, that's what it comes down to. Organic wine is made from grapes, wine grapes, that were grown using organic viticulture. And the main goal of this type of viticulture is to not use man-made materials in the vineyard. No man-made fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, can't use it. So broadly, what this does, and this is really great, and what this does is instead of using things that were man-made to target certain aspects of the vineyard, because we're talking about vines now, what you're doing is you're helping to maintain and sustain and even create more of an ecosystem below, above, and around your vine. So that vine, every year, when it produces fruit, every year it's getting stronger and more um, armored because of an ecosystem that is naturally being built around your vine and your vineyard. And that ecosystem continues to build and strengthen your agriculture. The thing with these industrial fertilizers and stuff, they're what's called soluble fertilizers. 
They're dissolved into water and added to the plants, and that's all they do. With organic fertilizer, which is basically compost, the nutrients that the vine and the soil need, instead of being targeted and released, like almost an injection into certain parts of the plants to make things happen, it actually, the nutrients are released in a slower, more delayed process like nature actually does. And this creates what winemakers call a soil food web, or actually just organic farmers call a soil food web, which is little critters like earthworms, slugs, and snails, which are called reducers. And they reduce all that earthly material down a little bit so that other little microscopic animals called protozoa or nematodes can then eat off that material and break it down even more so, eating stuff like leaf litter and sort of actually animal excrement they break all that down, and then you have the decomposers that are even smaller organisms. They colonize those fragments that are broken down by the protozoa and nematodes and convert that into what is called hummus, H-U, single M-U-S, which is basically soil. And all this feeds into the overall biomass of a vineyard, giving it health, giving it strength, and allowing things to naturally occur. Other things that organic winemakers do is they will put, or vineyard growers or vineyard managers, they will put cover crops among the vines, not only for competition, because we always talk about how vines need competition to go further into the earth, but also for soil to, to, to combat soil erosion. If you have a lot of cover crops, perennials and annuals, within the interrows of a vineyard, you're actually binding the soil together and holding it up so it doesn't erode to the point where you have to add more soil, which actually helps and benefits the biomass of everything. See how this is going? We're creating a symbiotic relationship between the vineyard and its surroundings. And that's awesome. But the thing is, we went through many, many years of non-organic agriculture. It's very hard to get the world back to it. So in the beginning, you had a lot of smaller companies or smaller winemakers that were either always organic and just adhered to what was new or winemakers or vine growers or vineyard managers who needed to convert from what we call conventional wine to organic. And that's a lot. That's where we get certifications. That's where everything gets a little bit red tapey, but it's important. You can be organic. You can be an organic vineyard, organic winery. You can do all the organic stuff and never get certified. But because of the popularity of organic wines, having the certification really helps you in the market. And because everywhere is different, every country, even some states, have different organic certifications than others depending on you know, where they are. And often these organic certifications have to be what's called ISO 17065 compliant. And that weird lost style thing that I just said, all, all that really is, is it is, quote, a product certification body's accreditation standard. And being compliant with that ISO 17065 certifies that you are conforming to the organic global baseline of that international organization I mentioned before, IFOAM. So that's how it all gets legit. I know, like I said, it's red tapey, but we need these things to, so that everyone actually is becoming 
that wants to be is becoming organic. We're only trying to improve the global biomass, man, you know? And this is what's crazy, wine lovers, is for a vineyard to convert to organic, it takes three years. Doesn't That makes sense, though, doesn't it? If you have a vineyard that's been targeting or being targeted by NPK for so long, it's all deficient. The soils are deficient. They're eroding. There are things going on. It's dry. There's not a lot of health there, except for the vine doing what it needs to do based on targeted fertilization and herbicides and stuff. So you have to literally convert that entire land into organic. You need to increase the biomass of this place. You have to increase the ecosystem. It doesn't happen overnight. And from what I understand, when you talk to um, organic winemakers about the conversion, and there's some of this in the Organic Wine Companion, and the fact that it's being stated is kind of a big deal, is that the second and third year of this conversion are the most precarious. It's when the ecosystem is vulnerable. It's still being formed. It needs time to kind of settle itself. That's just phenomenal, and that's scary, and it's a very expensive process. But when it's over and it's done, you have the certifiers coming in. They check everything. They have a list. They can't tell you what to do. They just need to tell you what you need to achieve, and they kind of leave you on your own. They come back and check on you, and then at some point, you they look at your, your biomass and all the ecosystem and everything, and they say, okay, this is legit. You are now an organic vineyard. Please maintain this. And because of the time and how expensive it is, this is one of the reasons why organic agriculture is not slowly now. It was slowly, but now it's steadily converting. But it takes time for a lot of these companies to convert, especially companies that are very large. They have to do it very carefully. They have different areas with different, you know, environmental specifics going on in those areas. Okay, this episode could go for like another 30 minutes, but let's wrap this up with what you're going to see on the shelves to understand organic wine in retail or on a wine list or whatever. So when you see organic wine or wine made from organic grapes on a wine label, this is what you're seeing. Really, a lot of the organic labeling is for the application of sulfur dioxide or SO2 or sulfites. Because if you are making a wine from organically grown grapes, it's going to be organic no matter what. But from 1992 until 2011, wines producers sold in Europe, in the EU, from organic grapes had to be listed or labeled wine from organically grown grapes instead of just organic wine. And this is no matter what sulfites or SO2 was being added. But then after 2011, from 2012 and on, that long, quote, organically grown grapes things was too much, so they just went for organic wine. So no matter whether you use sulfites or not, if your grapes are grown organically and made into organic wine, it's organic wine. But the thing about these European winemakers that are making organic wines, they don't really add a lot of sulfites, between 25 and 30%, which is a very, very small amount. In the U.S. and Canada, organic wine refers to wine made from organic grapes, but without the addition of SO2, or sulfur dioxide, sulfites. And this is where things get a little bit confusing, so just bear with me here. In the U.S. and Canada, the term made with organic grapes, not just organic wine, but made with organic grapes, 
it applies to the same certification of organics that is needed, but is also allowed to contain up to 100 milligrams per liter of SO2, which is still a very small amount. So with all European wines being made from organic grapes and the allowance of some sulfur uh, additions, because of that sulfur addition, if it's sold in the U.S., it must be labeled made with organic grapes, even though that same wine in Europe is just labeled organic wine, whether it has SO2 or not. It can get very confusing. So if your head is spinning a little bit right there, just know, just maybe think about it this way. Organic wine is not necessarily about the sulfur additions because sulfur additions are being minimized all over the world anyway. What we're doing is drinking wine that is grown from organically grown grapes, grapes that are grown in a vineyard that's happy, that has a wonderful biomass, that has a soil biota, an ecosystem that's healthy with worms and animals doing the work that they would do naturally to help something be sustained and to grow. That's what we're doing when we're drinking organic wine. And in doing so, what you create is this one farm-like organism. And that term, which I'm kind of paraphrasing, was created by Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner, who we're going to talk about in the next episode. We talk about biodynamics. But that's what organic wine is. There's so much to organic wine. I try to cram as much as I could into the small little 20-minute space. And I hope you have a little bit more of an understanding about it because next week we're going to dive into some really interesting stuff. I mean, astronomically interesting. Find Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pear headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pear. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pear, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pear staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. E&J Gallo is proud to sponsor Vine Pears Wine 101. From the beginning, Ernest and Julio Gallo knew the importance of protecting the environment. That was in 1933, way before the word sustainability was even invented. Today, Gallo upholds the highest sustainability standards to protect our planet and the future. To read more about Gallo's legacy of sustainability, visit the responsibility section on gallo.com.